We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is made, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to Undercover. My name's Brigida and I'll be your host as we take you through five stories that may have been left out of the mainstream news cycle. We'll hear about the marginalisation some Russians are facing in Australia as a result of the war in Ukraine, a story about an ex-prisoner's new business venture, how the pandemic has changed our music habits, and how returning to normal post-COVID has been harder for people with disabilities. To begin, since the start of the Russian-Ukraine war, the actions of many Russian individuals have been under scrutiny. While many Australians are staunchly supporting Ukraine, there is another side to the story. Here's Michaela Tor. It's February 24, 2022. The world lets out a collective gasp as Russian troops invade Ukraine. In the days that follow, Putin's war is almost universally condemned with millions of people showing their support on the streets and on social media. Many foreign governments impose strict sanctions on both Russian individuals and the importing of Russian products. But one group of people remains largely silent. Russians living abroad are confronting a unique set of challenges in the face of this war. I speak with a young woman from Moscow about her experience in Melbourne since the conflict began. Married to an Australian man, she now works in the hospitality sector and interacts with hundreds of people on a daily basis, too afraid to use her real name or even her real voice. An actor is speaking her words on her behalf. People ask me a lot where I'm from. It used to be a good, a nice way of starting talking with people. Now I'm too scared to say where I'm from. I'm visiting my home in May and only my employer and friends know this. The idea for this story came to me after something unsettling happened in a Melbourne Woolworths. An older man began making friendly small talk with me as I was looking for some fresh veggies. I didn't even notice as a stranger speaking on the phone in a foreign tongue casually walked by us. Suddenly, the older man's face dropped as he leaned in towards me and his smile turned into a snarl. He's speaking Russian. I bet he's working for Putin. I wondered, how could he tell? Sometimes I feel lucky because people don't always know where my accent is from. My father is Swedish, so sometimes I say I'm from there just in case. I don't want to have any conflicts. A lot of Australians are very nice, but in the beginning when people knew I was Russian, they attacked me for what was happening even though I did not agree with it. I reached out to a number of Russian organisations located in Australia and was met with almost the same response every time. No, they wouldn't go on record. But yes, they and their members are unilaterally against Putin's actions and the war. But in speaking with ordinary Russians, it became clear the situation was more complicated than that. I know people here hate Putin, but they don't understand. There is just, in Russia, there is really no one else we can vote for. When I pressed her on this issue, bringing up the leader of the Russia of the People Party, 
Alexei Navalny. She fell silent for a few moments and simply replied, There is no real option except for Putin. One man, who moved as a child to Melbourne from USSR Crimea, echoes this view, voicing his opinion on the Ukrainian president Zelensky. The Ukrainian president at the present moment made a first appearance on television as a fool. So he was butt naked behind the piano, playing the piano with his um, generals. Research that because you will just understand how much bullshit is here. Australia has followed the world's lead and imposed a multitude of sanctions against Russia and Putin's major supporters. But here at home, the toll on ordinary Russians is also being made clear. Local businesses operated by Russian immigrants are being boycotted in support of the Ukrainian people. I spoke to several business owners who confirmed they had suffered financial losses since the outbreak of the war, but refused to go on record for fear of further alienating themselves from the Russian people. The son of a former USSR soldier, who wishes to be known only as Sasha, has experienced these impacts firsthand. Unwilling to discuss the boycotting of Russian businesses for fear of hurting people he loves, Sasha is unequivocal in his opinion of the Australian media and belief in the Russian war machine. I think Russia's been painted as the evil people. Yes, they're the invaders, but um, it's just been propaganda from the word go. There's only one side of the media that we see. If you want to see the other side of the media, you've got to really hunt for it. The notion of Australian media spreading Ukrainian propaganda was one that came up many times in my conversations with Russian nationals. The Moscovian woman stated that much of the footage seen on our screens has been staged and actors paid. The Crimean man also believes this conflict is made up. So it looks to me, you know, like what, whatever they show on the news is a bunch of extremists. So they paid money, gave them drinks, gave them like a good time and just just make videos and they go stand in front of the tank. Told the tank to just like, you know, like pretend like he's running in my mind. While it's clear there is a division of opinion among Russians living in Australia, there are common threads running through the community. Many feel a sense of injustice with how they as ordinary citizens are being betrayed, while others harbour the fear of being discriminated against simply because of where they've been born. Sasha shares the commonly held view about Australia's involvement in the conflict. No, it's just ridiculous. Completely crazy, ridiculous. I have no idea why we're sending anything over and helping these people when we've been, they've been at war for so long and this has uh, got nothing to do with us at all. I spent many hours with those Russians who agreed to speak with me. Trying to establish where Russian people stand in this conflict has proven far more difficult than I anticipated. I found myself having to peel back layer upon layer of superficial conversation before anyone felt comfortable enough even to begin telling me how they really felt about this war. As I am piecing this story together, I feel as though there are so many threads yet to be unraveled. Maybe as an outsider, I'll never know the whole truth. What I do know is that no matter the outcome of Putin's war, the Russian people will do whatever is necessary to survive. That was Michaela Tour. Now, imagine you're driving to Geelong, a couple of turns off the Princess Highway in an industrial area of North Geelong, is the shop front for JC Williams Electrical. 
Owner Luke Anderson employs 10 people and has been running this company for a few years. It's not his only business venture and reporter Liam McNally sat down with him to find out the other ways he keeps himself busy. Luke Anderson has designed a new system for allowing incarcerated people to access approved clothes, books and photos on top of their prison issue clothing. I came up with an idea of a social enterprise called Fair Threads, which I'm working with corrections and it's pretty much going to be an online store that enables the friends and family of people that are currently incarcerated to be able to purchase approved items and have them shipped directly into prison on behalf of those friends and family. Currently, these extra items can only be dropped off during in-person visits. By having just an online service that you've got affordable, decent quality items that can be purchased online, you're opening up that accessibility to everyone from all different backgrounds, not just the people that have the resources to come in and, and visit the, the inmates. Luke says Fairthreads already has the support of Corrections Victoria and is just waiting on formal approval. I, yeah, I got I sat down with the CEO and the secretary, secretary and I was talking to them and, and they're like, this is fantastic. It's a fantastic idea. How did you come up with this? Obviously you've been like, had worked for Corrections or been or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I was just in jail eight weeks ago. <laughs> and Luke came up with this business idea while he was serving his own four-year prison sentence. Luke grew up in the Geelong area, where he experienced a childhood fraught with social and economic instability. In his early 20s, he found himself experiencing homelessness while undertaking an electrical apprenticeship. During this period, Luke turned to selling drugs to make ends meet. Eventually, he became the target of an undercover police investigation, which led to his arrest in 2016. Murder and large commercial um, trafficking carry a maximum term of imprisonment of life to, in Victoria. So I was charged with trafficking a large commercial quantity of MDMA. So when I, I called my lawyer and they explained that to me, I had absolutely no visceral response to it whatsoever. It was just, okay, no worries. It is what it is. While in jail, it was receiving letters of support that sparked a big change in Luke's life. And then when, when I'm getting reading through these letters, the people that I get the letters from, my mum, my nana, my sister, my dad, my stepmom and her. Luke had been estranged from his family for some time at this point, and the her he is referring to is a girl he was seeing that threatened to leave him when she discovered the double life he was leading. Luke describes her as the biggest catalyst in him trying to turn his life around. All these other people that were hanging around with me, shaking my hands, kissing my ass, all that kind of stuff, nowhere to be seen, absolutely gone. And it, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was those letters that, it was like um, that metaphor, a hot, hot knife through butter, it just, that, that was one of those, sh the shattering moment for me, I'd say, and I just broke down in tears, like properly crying for the first time. And it just washed over me and I, and I, and, and, I, and yeah, kind of, I guess that's the moment that I snapped out of it and I went, I've, I've got to do something about this. I want to care about going to prison for an extended period of time. And she essentially said that if I did the right thing, she'd be there to support me. And so I went away and I wrote a letter and it was what ended up being a pledge pretty much 
and me setting my first healthy goal in my life, which was, I was saying like, I, I've always felt like a, a lost little boy just walking in the dark and I've, I've had no idea what I want to do, but it's time for me to become a man. So if you decide to stick by me through this ordeal, then I'll become the man that you deserve. By the time I, I came out of prison, I'm really proud of myself to be able to say that I, I did achieve that in becoming the man that, that she deserved, absolutely. And now we're married and we're about to have a kid as well. Luke also plans for Fair Threats to be an employment opportunity for people getting out of prison. It's a transitional employment pathway for, for people that are coming home from prison so that they've got a, a work environment so that then they can know that they've also got a steady source of income and they can continue that work of counselling and whatever other self-growth that they had started in prison out in the community. Luke says that often when people have overcome experiences like his, there's an expectation that it should be left in the past. But he says it's important for community development to share those stories. Yeah, I think that we do need to engage with people that have come from backgrounds of adversity, sharing that knowledge and wisdom with other people that uh, are still working through it. Because at the moment that, that knowledge is all just lost and without those people involved in, in the game, we're, we're gonna continue just with the same old struggles. That was Liam McNally. Now, despite two years of dark stages and cancelled events, the Australian music industry has hit a 15-year high in 2021, with sales reaching their highest level since 2006. A vinyl renaissance is helping this along. That's right, it seems Wax is well and truly back. But with the growth in the vinyl market is coming new challenges for small artists. Here's Aidan Williams. past two years might be better forgotten by many in the music industry. Venue caps, socially distanced dance floors, and even living rooms posing as amphitheaters for Zoom gigs. The industry had to adapt, but despite the hardship faced by the industry during the pandemic, there's been a silver lining. With audiences confined to their homes and stereos, there's been an exponential climb in music consumption, and a growing desire to not only own media, but create it too. Vinyl sales in Australia are increasing, and the demand for records is at a recent high. But the growth isn't just driven by a love for wax, and the change in habits has come with some challenges of its own for independent artists in the industry. Based out of Enmore in Sydney's inner western suburbs, producer Andy Lowe is a musician's musician. By day, Andy works for Inertia Records as a digital marketing manager. By night, Andy DJs and produces his one half of the electronic duo Pins and Pals. Having now been on both sides of the turntable after releasing his first record on vinyl in January 2022 through English label Lobster Theremin, Andy said that getting the album on vinyl was an almost 24-month process. Demos were signed 2020, September 3rd. Their masters were done by March because of the pressing delays and stuff like that. The digital release only came out in August 20th, 2021, and then we had to wait till the following January 2022 for the physicals to even hit shores. Despite ticking off a lifelong bucket list item to hear his music on the turntable, Andy says that for independent musicians, there's also a need to press vinyl to sustain some, if any, money off the music they make. We never saw music as a revenue stream. You could be making $2.40 off a track every year. And again, we're also 
in the very niche niche part of the industry. So we weren't expecting to pay rent of this sort of thing. Touring was, was it for us. Crews in both Sydney and Melbourne exclusively press on wax because it's the only way they're going to make money from that music. That's quite a cyclical realm right there where it's like we've got an increased DJ culture because it's super accessible. And then also people understand the playing field that they have to make money off this. In their 2021 financial release, the Australian Recording Industry Association predicted 2021 as the year the music industry will once again see vinyl outsell CDs in Australia for the first time in over 30 years. Despite a global pandemic and economic crisis, ARIA's 2021 financial report proved to be true. Sales for vinyl were up in 2021 by 4% and dwarfed 2017 by over 20%. ARIA CEO Annabelle Hurd touched on the growth of the market in the report's media release, suggesting that the growth of the industry shows that wax is back. Ms. Hurd said that vinyl is an increasingly important player as the market evolves, and that it's giving listeners a greater connection to their music, as well as directly supporting independent artists, DJs, and emerging subcultures that deserve some serious recognition. But what's been driving this change? Andy thinks the pandemic has helped to shift the way audiences engage with their music. In the last two years, those all those massive gatekeepy editorial playlists from Spotify and Apple dropped in engagement because people aren't driving to work. People aren't sitting around listening to the office radio. You know, we're sit, we're, we were sitting at home for over a year. Our home became so important to people. I mean, like how many people do you know moved out or redecorated or had to find the perfect spot because they were just sitting cramped in a spot they realized they actually didn't enjoy so much or went the other way, fell madly in love with where what they were and just did as much as they could to you know be a part of it. But this increase in vinyl production isn't just a trend for Australian musicians. In countries like Japan that are beloved for their towers of records, merch and gear, many independent artists are pressing on vinyl for the first time too. Tokyo hip-hop producer and label owner Drew Samantha says that an increase in vinyl trade is a positive for sampling producers like himself. Drew's latest project, React, is an embodiment of that circular production of music. Being constructed from an amalgamation of sounds and influences from years of crate diving, Drew says his love for vinyls was essential in his own creative process. Everything was produced on the MPC 4000 from sampling records. Very kind of like an old school approach. Not using too many digital software or computers. We're both big vinyl lovers ourselves, especially for secondhand old records, you know, 70s, 60s. Just buying old LPs, soul funk, soul jazz and jazz LPs. Also world, a lot, lot of kind of worldly sound. We would go digging together and then go back to the studio and make a beat with the record. It was a very natural process really for us. The global record sales market report from 2021 predicted that in the next five years, the vinyl industry ex is expected to be more than double in value and be worth $481.5 million. With massive companies like Amazon even announcing their first foray into the vinyl market, the growth predictions are again shaping to be true. But with this increase in consumer demand is an impact on a manufacturing process that was already approaching a breaking point, causing a ripple felt further downstream for independent artists Andy and Drew share the same opinion that the success of releasing an album is all in the planning. Albums are planned and project managed meticulously, and with the current logistical concerns of pressing a record, there's increased pressure on independent artists to get that process right. There's so much music getting released every day, right? So if you if you just you don't kind of set up a plan, a release plan, and you just drop it on the one day and try to push all your promo on one day, people sure you'll get a buzz on the first day, but then next day more music's gonna get released so a lot of people mm. just forget about it you know or some people won't even get to see it so. 
it's quite difficult to manage. And it also determines, you know, how much attention is really out there. And then you can pass that on to, I don't know, maybe you can pass it on to DSPs. You can certainly pass it on to booking agents. Then the big day comes out and you know how many you need to ship places and you sell as many on the day. And, you, and that's where you make all your revenue because you're not, you're barely making on streaming unless you're a big act. The system is set up. It is so crippled that the only way we could make money was off live touring. And even then it was difficult. The shortage for us here is going to turn again from five to seven months to make nine. I, you know, and again, unless you're a major who can work on different continents, it's only going to make things worse. That was Aidan Williams. For parents of children with disabilities, knowing where to start when looking for support can be a daunting task. The NDIS can help parents when navigating this, and Connor McKinnon sat down with one of their workers to find out what they do to help. Annie works at an NDIS partner in Geelong as an early childhood practitioner. Alongside parents of young children with disabilities, she creates plans that help give them access to the support they need. For parents, getting this help can be daunting, but people like Annie work with them to find the best ways to support their child through the use of these plans. But first of all, what exactly is an NDIS plan? A plan is essentially a budget for eligible participants. So when they have met the access criteria for the NDIS, they meet with a planner, which is myself, and we assess the child's needs assess where they may need some support, what services will be beneficial, and then we build a budget based on that. Simply put, a plan is a budget of funding that provides support services tailored towards each individual child's needs. This funding is generally provided on a yearly basis. As Annie works with young children, it is vital that this intervention happens as early in their lives as possible. Children develop the most before the age of five, so it is so important that support starts before then. You wanna get them in as quick as you can because in early childhood time is of the essence we can get supports in place for a child who's two or three and they can get some really solid intervention the results are going to be so much better having previously worked in early childhood education annie saw firsthand how important this kind of support is especially with children who are likely to struggle in the transition to school moving from that environment to this role as an early childhood practitioner and working with families who are just trying to do the best they can. You really do feel that real responsibility to help them as much as possible. Annie might only get to know the child for a couple of hours, but their parents know them and their needs better than anyone. There needs to be trust and openness between the two. We really try and put it back on them as much as possible and get them to tell us what they're experiencing rather than us sitting there and saying, this is what we see, this is what we want to do. So really relying on that collaboration is really important to, to everything that we kind of do with the families. Some parents aren't as open about the challenges their children are facing. This means that Annie has to rely on other opinions to properly construct a plan. Some children only show delays in certain environments, so establishing broad patterns of behaviour is important to fully understand what help they need. We started relying on professional reports, encouraging people to link in with paediatricians or GPs who were still able to cite that child and were able to give us sort of that corroboration, I suppose, for what we were reporting, linking in with daycares and kinders as much as possible. Following a series of calls, Annie takes what they discussed and uses it to create the plan, which is then submitted to an NDIS delegate for approval. So, what is the end goal of these plans? Some children have developmental delay, 
which means that the focus is building their social and emotional skills to prepare them for school and community life. A longer term aim is to transition them off the plans after they turn six. By that age, the hope is that the support has minimised the delays as much as possible. The aim for those children with developmental delay is really to get that early support in place to provide that consistent early intervention, build up that parent capacity so that they understand how they can support their child moving forward. Others may have a lifelong disability. They work towards living the best life they possibly can whilst acknowledging that this will be a potentially lifelong process. The aim is still to get them supported in mainstream services, community services, still to build up that capacity, so increase what the child is able to do and increase the ways that the parents can support that child, but acknowledging that the end goal isn't necessarily to transition them off the scheme, it's just to help them work towards their goals. It is important to remember that these plans are made for real children who are relying on this support to get the best out of life. This is a huge responsibility and although her job can be incredibly draining, it is one which Annie understands and values. It supports children, it builds up their ability to participate in community and mainstream and do everything that other little kids should be allowed to do. And so it's a big responsibility sometimes and you feel a lot of pressure and you know that it's kind of worth it in the end and the child's going to be better off for having access to this support. That was Connor McGinnon. Now we know what the NDIS is planning for children looks like. But what about people on the other side of the transaction? Especially in our post-lockdown world. For people with disabilities, going back to work can be challenging. To find out how they're getting along, I went and spoke to some of the people on the front line. As we race back to our busy lives, I wondered how this was affecting people. In my daily conversations, some people confess that they miss the comfort and accessibility of lockdown. This idea of comfort and accessibility made me curious about people with disabilities and how lockdown ending was impacting them and what it was like being back in the workplace. The voice you're about to hear belongs to Phil Hayes-Brown, the CEO of Wallara. Wallara is a disability organisation that works with 500 adults. One of those adults is his daughter, Phoebe, who has a moderate intellectual disability and is non-verbal. Phil works closely with people who have disabilities at work and at home. He explains some of the added difficulties people with disabilities are dealing with as we go back to COVID normal. One being that people with underlying conditions are at a higher risk of COVID and people with disabilities fall into that camp. Right, so people with disabilities are more fragile, more vulnerable, and, and that's uh, that means that travelling on public transport, you know, just the risk of getting out there in crowds or with people um, or close to people is higher. Right. Um, fundamentally, inherently, it's a high risk for people with disabilities to return, even if they are vaccinated. The stress of COVID can be an extra burden on people with disabilities, as they are often dealing with anxiety alongside their disability. So the whole environment of uncertainty and risk and concern about masks and things like that can exacerbate conditions, you know, underlying conditions. So uh, you're hearing families um, that are you know, noticing the extra behaviours, if you like. Most of us in, in the disability sector, when people are stressed or can't communicate or, you know, that it usually comes through in behaviour. Yeah, there might be um, less, less patience, uh, more anger, you know, whatever. That, that's how it manifests itself. So, so uh, we're seeing that in the disability community. We're seeing um, 
Some people choose to stay at home because they don't feel safe yet going out. Some people with disabilities function better being at home and find going out can be overwhelming, so in that way, lockdown was a positive thing for them. Although it can be very challenging for people with disabilities going back to the workplace. Phil highlighted that we hear so many tragic stories and not the good ones. We don't hear enough of these stories. You know, you hear about the other side of disability, you know, the, the tragic side, the need for money and services, you know, but you don't hear enough, I don't think, about the, the good story, how people with disabilities are getting through their own challenges and contributing back and, and in some cases paid works. Phil also talked to me about making sure people with disabilities have the same opportunities, the same chance to have meaning in their lives. People are looking for a, a social role, we'll, we'll use that phrase. Some sort of role might be volunteering, it, it might be paid work. You know, we're all looking for a purpose, you know, a mission, a reason to get out of bed and something that makes us feel good about what we do. You know, that's what all of us are looking for in life and people with disabilities are no different. I wanted to see what it was like for people with a disability back in the workplace. I went to Alira Logistics where Ben Van Ray has worked for five years and he showed me around. Sorry. Brigitte. Brigitte, Ben. Ben, nice to meet you, Ben. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. How are you? So it's so in my hand now. I've got a pin, um, and then we've got. Uh, Another, it's got Maya on the background. We sort them for Maya, and it's got uh, ink tags. Yeah. And they, um, we join them together, and then we put them in a container which is sitting next to me. Um, and we uh, ship them off for a company called Checkpoint. Oh, cool. And um, they take them and distribute them to Maya stores across. Melbourne and Australia. This is where, this is my baby, as I like to call it. <laughs> this is Biore Nostrup. Ah, oh, yes. So we uh, package and make up the boxes for Biore. Ben told me that everyone at Ulara has a disability. He showed me the big warehouse, the people who work, the forklifts and the trucks all run by people with disabilities. I asked him if he felt his work was not given enough recognition. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think um it's definitely un undervalued yeah definitely and we actually it's great now because on the biore uh boxes on the sides they've actually put walara this product has been packaged by walara so that's great recognition for us Ben told me he was lucky enough during the lockdowns to still come into walara logistics as it was considered essential I asked him if he was concerned about COVID, as he is in a high-risk category. I guess it, it does concern me, but at the same time, I've got to live my life. So I guess for me, it's just about taking all of the precautions that I can, and but still going out and doing what I want to do. That was Undercover. This episode was produced by Gabriel Rule with assistance from Maya Veness, reporting by Michaela Tor, Liam McNally, Aidan Williams, Connor McKinnon, and me, Brigitte Hare. Special thanks to Tito Ambio and RMIT University. Okay? Perfect.